working through the covenant and, and the Abrahamic covenant and how it ties in and it's this, this key link to the Messiah coming and, and my salvation. And it just, as I'm studying it, I just get welled up and, and then he chooses those songs. And, and I have the benefit of knowing where this message is going and it just, it just fills me up. So as, as we're singing, I, I hope we can just do all those songs again at the end. After, after we get through this. So I was told I get 65 minutes this morning. And so, <laughs> and so here we go. Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to do the Abrahamic covenant. I'll give you a second to, to find that. We're going to start in verse 7. This is one of those passages. Um, when, we, when we decided we were going to teach through Genesis, I got this cold sweat. And, you know, as, as we're going through, we can study and... But there are certain passages that are just hard because they tie so much together. And this is one of those passages. So this is egghead morning. You've got to put on your thinking hats and, and we're going to stomp through this. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as for yourself you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Raphium, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Whew. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you're your spirit would be so ever-present today as we look at your word, that, God, your word would be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
God, that we aren't just here to play Bible trivia, but God, we desire to meet you in your word and to learn about you. So God, would you please teach us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm hoping to get the sign that I don't have to use this, but I may just go to yelling. Well, first off, we we start off uh, with a little bit of review of last week. Sorry. (laughs) Slightly awkward. Yeah, this is bonding time. So, a little review from last week because this thing starts off with a, with a response to what happened last week. At the very end of last week in Genesis fifteen six, we see uh, at the very end it said, Abram believed God and it was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. That's where it ended. And then we start off with God announcing to Abraham, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans. And so he's noting right away that you have been delivered from a place and brought somewhere else by me. I called you from there into this promised land. And then comes this interesting piece. And and reading it over and over and over, the first thing I thought was, didn't it just say that Abram believed God? And it was credited as righteousness. And then the next thing you see is, but God, how am I going to know? And obviously that's not it. Because nowhere in here does God strike him deaf or chastise him for unbelief. He just breaks, a, he just cuts a covenant with him. He, he makes a covenant to show him why it is that he can be assured that God is going to do what he said. And so when we read this piece, one of the first questions that came to my mind is, you know, how many times in Scripture do we have people actually questioning God? And a couple of examples. One is Abraham right here, Abram. He, he questioned God. He said, God, show me. Show me. And, and God did show him. And then there's other places where the exact same thing, even the same words were used. When Zechariah was in the temple and God said, you're going to have a son, he's going to be a forerunner to the Christ, he's going to wear camel's hair, he's going to do all these things, and Zechariah said, Psh, didn't you know I'm old? And what did God do? Did God say, well, let me show you why you can believe it? He didn't. He said, you're now not going to speak. He was struck deaf for his unbelief. The same question, but two different responses. We move on to another one. When, when Gabriel came to, what's that lady's name? Mary. That was just my way of getting you attached. Okay. He comes to Mary and he says, these great things are going to happen. You're going to be the mother of the Christ. And, and Mary says, but, but how can this be? Same question. And does she get struck deaf? Said, well, you're not going to talk until he's born. No, because we see the response of her also. Just let it be done to your servant just the way you said. There's a belief there. There's a belief, and that belief then questioned, God, how is this going to be? Just show me. Show me. Watch the attitude. Because there's a whole bunch more. We have Gideon. Are you sure you want me to go out there with 15 guys and a fork to fight off all these people? Are you sure you want me to do that? God says, yep, watch. God leads him through that. 
And then we have other people, like the teachers of the law, who come in and say, Jesus, I have a question for you. A brother marries a woman. He dies and leaves her childless. And on and on and on the story goes, and Jesus says, hmm, you ignorant thing. Look at the heart of these different questions. And thank you. All right, we're going to try this. I think this is like a lollipop, and I just want to start licking it. This encourages me because when I read things, I'm kind of an engineering type, and I read things with lots of questions, lots of questions. And as I'm reading God's Word, it's not that I don't have faith exactly, it's that I just don't understand. And then when I see God moving in things, I just don't understand. And, and so I, I sit back and I say, God, how can that be? And there are times when it is lack of faith. And I do need to be chastised. And the Lord is gracious to me to bring me through that. And there are other times when my heart really is believing and I just want to see what the Lord is doing. And I know everybody is in that place at some time or another, just wanting clarification. God, we've done these things with our kids, but yet, what's happening? Have we not been obedient to this? Or your word says, why is this? We've been praying for this person for 15 years. They haven't come to Christ. Why is that? It's not a lack of belief. It's really desiring the Lord to show you. And so as I go, I went through about 15 different questions in Scripture of people that are actually questioning the Lord. And, and it, there's a principle here. In James 1.5, it says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And he'll give it to you. But then in 1.6, it follows that up. It says, but don't ask with a heart that doubts. Don't be just asking God questions when you really don't care about the answer, when you're really doubting that he has the power to give you that answer or, or, or you don't really care what he's doing, you doubt God altogether. Why is it you want the answer? Well, later on, we have a, a, a verse that says, you know, you, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you're just asking for selfish reasons anyway. Don't think you're going to receive anything. And so there's a hard attitude here in Abraham. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. When he went to ask God, how is it that this is going to happen? God answered him. God answered him. I love that little piece. We move on. And God says, let me show you. Let me confirm for you why you can trust me. Go get me some animals. Now, these are pretty special animals. It just happens that each one of these animals are going to play a vital role in the sacrificial system later on. And here they kind of show up in scripture for us in a nice list. So God says, go get a three-year-old heifer. Nice, mature. Go get a three-year-old female goat. These are very specific animals that he chose to uh, have, have Abraham bring. So Abraham gets the animals and brings them. And we can't miss this piece. God said, go get these. And it may seem simple, but Abraham went and got them. Now, why that shouldn't seem so simple is, how many times has God told us, go 
we kind of thought, stop doing, humble yourself in the, that one's tough. Right? It, this part about go get these animals, it, God, or excuse me, Abram believed God. Obedience is a direct correlation to believe in God. If you believe God, you will obey. That's why all the way through we have the book of 1 John that says, you know what, if you obey me, that's the people that love me. That's a, that's a key ingredient. If you can look at your life and say, you know, God's word says this and I do this, you can pretty well guarantee that you don't believe God. If this is a, if this is a pattern in your life over and over and over again, you can assume that you don't believe God. Abram believed God, he obeyed him. And then comes the next piece. Abram waited. Now, all the way through Abram's life, you see Abram waiting. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the first promise where he told Abram, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. How old was he? Eh, middle age, 50s, 70s. And now we're here at 80. The man has waited years and years and years to see these covenants move just little steps at a time. And so here he says, get the animals. He gets the animals. He cuts them up. He prepares them just like God has told him to prepare them. And then he waits. He waits for God to come show him because he knows he's going to show up. God told him to do this. He's going to wait for him. And now we have to be a little bit careful. Nearly every commentary that I read on this passage, it says, while the, these carcasses are laying out, being prepared for God to, to come and do what he's going to do, the birds came and tried to eat the meat. So one commentary says, well, the birds represent the evil thoughts that we have in our quiet times. Wow, really? The birds represent the hard time that the Israelites are going to have when they go into the land of Egypt. The bird, it's just one thing after another. And every single one of them is different. Every one of them is different. Now, I will admit that this is an awkward phrase right in the middle of this. You have him waiting and then the birds just show up. But what we have here is a historical narrative. Genesis is a historical narrative. There is no reason to read something into this text that doesn't exist unless somewhere else in Scripture God has decided to say this is a foreshadowing for this event. If it doesn't say that, then every great theologian can make up anything he wants and tell you, oh, the birds are this. Oh, the birds are that. And pretty soon we're going to get that great dreadful darkness. Because the birds are this, so the great dreadful darkness has to be this other thing. And we build these awkward systems, and there's a big word for this called eisegesis. You're reading things into the text that aren't there. So we have to be careful when we read these things that we want them to say, because we, we don't understand it. Why, why did God put the birds in there? God doesn't just write things for no reason. But if God doesn't give you what that means somewhere else, be careful 
making your own interpretation as to what they mean. The fact is there's meat on the ground and birds like dead meat. So I'm not going to read any more into that because that's kind of what it says. And nowhere else in Scripture can I find a place, including all the commentaries, that actually say, because it says here that this is what those birds meant, it's nowhere. It's nowhere. It's just a bunch of things that are made up. So we've got to be careful about that, especially in some of these passages that are a, a little more difficult to understand. So here's what we have. God told him, get these animals, prepare them. Abraham did that. Now Abraham's waiting and he's got his stick and he's shooing off all the birds. But then it says, as the sun went down, it got later in the day, Abram fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, God came and spoke to him. And here's the message that God gave him. First, the Israelites will be sojourners. Be assured, he tells him. The Israelites will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. 400 years they're going to be in this land and there's going to be affliction. Now hold on to that because we're going to come back to this one. 400 years. But don't, don't get caught up on that. I will judge the nation where they're serving that have afflicted them and caused them all this harm. He tells him about the deliverance of them from this nation. Tells him about him dying at a good old age. And that in the fourth generation, the Israelites will come back to the promised land. That's that 400 years part. 400 years maps to four generations there. And then lastly, it says, the reason they have to be there is because the iniquity of the Amorites isn't quite in. Now this is... One packed couple of sentences. First off, those of you that, um, when you read this, some of you just may immediately go, wait a minute. Moses wrote this after the Exodus, and he's prophesying something that happened before the Exodus. Let me say that again. Moses is post-Exodus when he's writing this. Okay, All of this stuff has already happened. And so some of you may want to cry, foul ball. I don't know how to do foul ball, okay? Out of bounds. Sorry, I'm not a, not a sportster. Either way, <laughs> touchdown. Foul ball. You can't do that. You can't write a prophecy after it's happened. And so the first time I read this, I went, problems. Problems. Now, again, we have to be careful because we can, this is not a lack of faith thing. This is a God, how does that work? Because then you have to sit and think, okay, the word of God is living and active. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. And, and so this is scripture and it's God-breathed. Which means God told Moses to write this down. Moses wasn't standing with Abram when God did that. And so Moses was just as surprised when God moved him to write this passage as Abraham was when he got it. You get that? And when God moved them out of Egypt, there was more than enough validation to prove to Moses that this was true. You see that? And so when we, say, when we see Moses writing a prophecy 
that happened 400 before it even happened. There's all the credibility here because this is God's word. And so we have to be careful in, in well, I'm not even going to say that. Let's keep going. 400 years they will be afflicted. Um, could you imagine being the father of a great nation and hearing that all of your offspring are about to go into slavery and stay there for longer than this country has been around? Just think about that for a minute. They're going to go, they're going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they are going to be afflicted. And God knew it. He knew it beforehand. He knew that they were going to go into this land, their babies were going to be killed, that these wicked men who led these dynasties we're going to cause immense pain on God's chosen people. And God knew about it while he's talking to Abram right here and telling him. Interesting, Abram didn't wake up and say, Ho, ho, wait a minute. Can't you do something about that 400-year thing? I think that's how I would have woken up. I would have definitely keyed into this one piece. You're telling me that my entire line of people are going to be struggling for the next 400 years? God says, yeah. Yeah, but I, I have a purpose here. We, we like to call Egypt the incubator for the Israelite nation because that's really what it was. God moved, God moved the, the fam Jacob into Israel and they grew and grew and grew and grew. And the only reason that they really faced affliction was because they became too powerful. See that? And so as God blessed this nation and they grew, grew more powerful and more powerful and more powerful, the top guys got scared. And these are wicked men and they started causing problems for that nation and, and put them into slavery. And God knew that was going to happen. And as I reflect on this part, I think... There are times either in your life right now or coming up or maybe you just got out of them where you're in a time that you would rather God just erase from the history books because that's ugly. But in most cases, when we get all the way through it and look back and see what God was doing in that time, in most cases, we would say, wow, praise the Lord. There was some pain there, but God was burning off the chaff in my life. God was moving me closer to himself. God was working on character, working on these things, but he was making me more like himself. In, I, in any, I think in anyone's case who's followed the Lord more than 10 minutes, you see that. You have in John... Uh, 13, John 16, the passage that says, you know what, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Right? Through trials, you know that this, you, be thankful in all things, be thankful in these trials because you know that those trials are eventually growing perseverance, they're growing hope. They're giving you a desire for this land because right now you're a sojourner also. 
Right? You're a sojourner in the land just like Abraham's descendants are going to be, as we see here. And you're longing for a different place. Last piece there, what's the purpose of the delay? The scripture gives us the scripture gives us the story of the Hebrew people leading to the Messiah. It keeps a pretty tight margin through history. We don't get to look at all these other dynasties and people groups throughout the world. We get the Hebrews. That's what scripture gives us. And right here we get a little glimpse into the thought that, you know what? God is not just about the Hebrews. God is about reconciling mankind to himself. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, right? Romans 1.16. But he's about, rec- he's about reconciling all of mankind back to himself. And so when we see this passage here, right at the very end where it says, the reason for this delay is because the sins or the, the iniquities of the Amorites are not fully in. And the Amorites, by what he means by Amorites, are all the people groups that are in the, in the promised land right now. He just kind of grouped them all together and said, the iniquities of those people right there, they're not full yet. There's a time when that cup will be full, and when that cup is full, judgment will follow. And I'm using you, Israelites, now in the incubator of Egypt to move through this land of Canaan and exercise my judgment in that land. But we're not ready yet. And so you're going to wait in Egypt until we are. There's two things we, I get from this. First off, I'd love to say God seldom does one thing at a time. God seldom does one thing at a time. If, if something is going on in your life and you're looking at somebody else's life that you're connected to, you can guarantee that God's working both in them and in you. When you see things working, um, I'm trying, yeah, we're going to move on from that. God seldom does one thing at a time. Okay? And in this case, he's working both on the Israelites and giving the Amorites a chance to repent. But he knows, just as he knows that there's going to be affliction in Egypt on the Israelites, he knows that the Amorites are not going to repent. But he's giving them all that time. When we teach Sunday school, we have to remember that part. Because we talk about Joshua marching around the big wall and screaming and and, then the peas fall off the wall. Those of you who are... Uh, VeggieTale fans. Okay, and the walls come crumbling down, and we go in. But then when you start saying, but they killed every, mm, mm, everything. Don't leave anything standing, including the puppies. All of it. Why? Because this is judgment. That's one thing that we learn. The second thing is, In each one of us, the scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. Don't put off to tomorrow. If God's calling you today and you hear this this burden in your spirit, the word tells us that God convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The moment that you sense that, that, that conviction in your soul of, you know what, I need to follow God, stop everything. Nothing else in your life is that important. Not your dinner, not a trip to the... Nothing is important. 
as you stopping right then and saying, wait a minute, God is convicting me. I need to follow him because you don't know when your time is up. You don't know when that cup is full. You don't know when you no longer have a chance. God is infinitely patient, but a time is coming when judgment's going to reign. Don't let that happen. So that's the second thing I pick up from that passage. So after, after he gives them this vision, the next thing that happens is what they call cutting the covenant. So in the Old Testament times, you see this in Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34, it's, it's uh, talked about again, where landowners, when they would make land deals or any kind of deals, they would cut animals open, lay them out like so. They would hold hands, awkward, and they would skip through the, they would walk through the carcass. And what the meaning of that was, was they're essentially stating, if any of us break this covenant, we should be cut in half like this animal is. Okay, so it's a rather gruesome way of signing a contract. If I break the covenant, I should be cut open like one of these animals, and that's what cutting the covenant meant. Okay? Well, that's exactly what we have going on here. We have these animals, and Abram and God hold... Bless you. No, Abram and... Abram's asleep. Abram's totally left out of this. It says, a fire pot smoking and a torch of fire go through the animals. God goes through by himself. So one thing that we say about this covenant that God is making with Abraham is that the covenant is unconditional. It doesn't matter what Abraham does. It doesn't matter because Abraham can't fulfill what's going on here. In fact, Abraham's not even going to get to go into the land with his descendants. God is promising to Abraham something that's going to happen way beyond him. And only God can accomplish this. So God goes through the animals by himself. Now again, picture that for a moment. God can't lie. So why would God have to go through the animals? Why would, why would he do that? One of our core values here is that we encounter God in his word. And so this is one of those places where we can grab on to one of the characteristics of God and never let go of it. James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you. Abram said, God, show me. Show me how I, I know this is going to happen. And God did. God answered that. God showed him why he could believe it was going to happen. Then he goes on to tell him about the essential land covenant. This is your land. And it's from the Nile River or the Great River, the, the river in Egypt, all the way up to the Euphrates. So it's essentially what we consider Israel now with a rather significant buffer on it. Okay, they, don't, they don't have this entire land now. Um, you can see on the slide where the Euphrates is and where, where the Nile is. That's the land that God is promising him. 
Oh, by the way, other gods have promised a whole lot of other people this land too. And so nowadays, in 2009, we're up against all of these struggles and battling over that land. Whose land is it? If God gave it to the Israelites, it's the Israelites. But if somebody else's God gave it to them, well, they think it's theirs too. So now we have this problem. What's the solution? What's the solution? The answer to that question really is, who is God? If God be God, serve him. And in the end, again, God will make that evident. Okay. Let's get to the so what. The so what here is that this covenant is a critical link in, in what we could almost call covenant theology where you take an, these covenants that happen throughout time and we can link them together and see that this is headed to the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come through Abraham. We see that in, in Genesis chapter 12. All nations are going to be blessed through you. Essentially, he's saying the Messiah is going to come through you, and I'm going to make you a father of many nations, not just yours, but many nations, including the Gentiles. We're all going to be blessed through Abraham. This covenant then, this land that, that, he's, going to, that he's giving to Abram, is, is a covenant that starts this process. Here's where we're going to bring these people. And these people then are going to uh, essentially just be, mm, I don't want to use the word incubator again, but the Messiah is going to come through this line. He's going to come from Israel. And so this is a, is a link in the whole messianic uh, story. Now, the part of this that gets cumbersome is when we go over to the New Testament, because this covenant I'm struggling here because we're really out of time and we are, we're, we're 10 minutes from finishing. So I'm gonna, we're going to wrap this up a little bit and we're, I'm going to give you some places to study. You see the passages that are there and let me give you two more. In Galatians 3 and in Romans 4, this covenant is expressed more fully where he connects the covenant that's coming, the second one on that list, the Mosaic Covenant, where it's no longer unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant where it depends on what the Israelites do. As long as you do this, I will bless you. And when we get to the Messiah, all the New Testament, when they fight about the law versus grace, the law versus grace, it really is connecting the unconditional covenant to the conditional covenant. The promise versus the law. We now, as believers, are living in the new covenant where it's written on our hearts. We no longer have to be performing to earn God's favor. We live in the new covenant, which is unconditional. And so... Just to, to tie this off, 
there's a slide there about what more could God do. And this is the picture of the new covenant. At the end of those covenants come the gospel. The fulfillment of all of these pieces is our redemption, is us being reconciled back to God. Let's just wrap up there. Lord God, I just pray that you would uh, that you would use your word and that it would be effective in our lives. God, that you would teach us how great a salvation we have and the great lengths that you went through to reconcile us back to yourself. And God, as a believer, we can look back and see how you've revealed yourself to us, how you've revealed that plan to us. God, I just pray that as we focus on that, Lord, that that our lives would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.